Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. <clears throat> we are going to be verses 4 through 9 today. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 10. Well, I have been so blessed in my preparation and studying Daniel. The book is amazing. We have seen some incredible events in the book of Daniel. There have been dreams and visions, kingdoms overthrown, prophecies, but yet without, with, with as spectacular of a book as this is, it is still so practical and so relevant to you and me on an everyday basis. And so I am so excited just in studying this book and for our text today. <clears throat> when I first became a Christian, when I first believed the gospel, I heard a message that my sins could be forgiven in Christ and that I could have an inheritance waiting for me in heaven when this life came to an end. Now, I believe that truth and I rejoice in it, but as my life, my Christian walk began, I, things began to enter in, which caused me to doubt the reality of that. I wondered if it was really true for me, and at times I looked, it looked as though to me that this wasn't real for me. Like, I, was I really saved? Am I really going to heaven? I wrestled with sin and growing in sanctification. I realized the reality of spiritual warfare, the opposition to my faith from the world, the flesh, and the devil. I encountered various hardships that tested my perseverance in Christ. And there was many times that I asked myself the question, Daniel, are you really going to heaven? And I'm sure those around me are probably asking the same thing, but I assure you, I am. There were so many times that I wished that God would just come to me and give me a complete detailed roadmap of what's ahead. Just tell me what's going to happen. Daniel, walk this way. This is the next step. This is the following one. This is what's going to happen all the way to heaven. Give me a great assurance. And I cried out to God so many times, oh God, I wish you would just rend the heavens and, and speak to me. Give me a certain assurance. I'm struggling with it. Uh, he ministered to me in a very powerful way, not through some incredible vision, but through his word. He caused me to know through his word uh, that I had a certain assurance of my salvation, that the end was secure. He gave me a blessed assurance. Well, in our text today, we're going to see that Daniel is going through a similar situation. We began to see last week that the entire final section of Daniel, these last three chapters, they're full of meticulous detail, but they're aimed at giving Daniel an absolute certainty and an understanding of what will happen to his people, the Jews, in the last days. You see, Daniel had been fasting, he had been praying and mourning, and the great concern of his heart was the fate of his people. We saw last week a certainty of the Word of God, and this week, we're going to see that this certainty comes from a person. And that's what I've titled today's message, Certainty from a Certain Man. As Daniel had been considering the future hope of Israel, he looked at the nation. They had been permitted to go back to the land, yet only 42,000, a very small number in comparison with the nation, actually returned. And although they began to rebuild the temple, the work had come to a screeching halt not too long after and it seemed as though Israel's enemies were once again, had the upper hand, were on top of them again. 
And considering all this, Daniel's discouraged, he's devastated, he is mourning, and it's in this state that the Lord comes to him one last time to unfold the future. And in so doing, he's going to give Daniel uh, great assurance uh, that all he said would come to pass. In our text today, Daniel chapter 10, verses 4 through 9, we're going to see four components of Daniel's vision, which will give him a certainty of the future restoration of Israel which in turn will also assure us that the destiny of God's people is secure. Our text unfolds before us today in four sections. First, in verse 4, we're going to see that Daniel is assured of Israel's future by the setting of the vision. First, we see in verse 4 the setting of the vision. Then in verses 5 and 6, we're going to see that it comes through the spectacle of the vision. Verses 5 through 6 is a spectacle. Then in verse 7, we will see that it's in the selectivity of the vision. Verse 7, the selectivity of the vision. And lastly, verses 8 and 9 show us the strength of the vision. Let's begin by reading our text. And I want to start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 9. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the word and had an understanding of what had appeared. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were fulfilled. Verse 4. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose loins were girded with a belt of pure fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision that appeared. But the men who were with me did not see the vision that appeared. Nevertheless, a great terror fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I alone remained and saw this great vision that appeared. Yet no might remained in me, for my outward splendor turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no might. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Well, we begin by looking at the setting of this vision, the when and where of it, where it's going to take place, when it takes place, and all this is going to lend itself to giving Daniel assurance of the future of Israel. Notice first it says that in the 24th day of the first month, the first month of the year for the Israelites was the month of Nisan. The second was Honda, followed by Toyota. I blame Chris. He set the mood. He set the tone for us with those jokes, those dad jokes. Once you become a father, just like all these things start rushing into your head. I don't even know where they came from. But anyways, the first month of the year was Nisan and When the Lord instituted the Passover and the Exodus event, God told Moses and Aaron, he said that this month was to be the beginning of months. This is the first of the year for you. And in preparation for the Passover, they were to take a a lamb, each household in their house on the 10th day of the month. They would keep it till the 14th day on which they would slaughter it, put the blood on the doorpost. And then in Exodus 12, 14, God commanded them to keep this Passover Uh, observance as a memorial to celebrate to Yahweh throughout their generations. And so as Daniel was fasting for three weeks, he fasts right through the Passover celebration, 
But he also fasted right through the feast of unleavened bread, which took place the week immediately following the Passover. His fast came to an end on the 24th day of the month, which would have been three days past all the festivities. So rather than celebrating, rather than rejoicing, commemorating, remembering the feast and the Passover and rejoicing in the memorial and the birth, the deliverance of the nation, he's mourning. He's in a state of despair. And as was mentioned last week, the word for mourning that he uses is a word that refers to mourning for the dead. Rather than celebrating birth, it's as though he is mourning as over death, suffered a great loss. So the nation is once again not being obedient to the Lord. They ceased to build the house of the Lord. Rather, they built their own houses. In their rebellion, it was their rebellion in the first place that led them into exile. And here they are again, not obeying. And it seemed as though to Daniel, everything is not what it needs to be. The people aren't quite where they need to be. And this caused Daniel to mourn over that reality. During this time, which was intended for the remembering of God's deliverance of his people, the one who would ultimately deliver them once and for all would come and stand before Daniel. And the place where he is mourning at is also a fitting location. Notice that it says, while I was on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. Now, Psalm 137, after the nation, they had been taken captive. Uh, Psalm 137 records an experience of theirs. Uh, And it's both a psalm of uh, mourning, great mourning, as well as expectation, anticipation. Verse 1, he says, uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 137, 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and also wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our lyres. For there our captors asked us about the words of a song, and our tormentors asked us joyfully, saying, Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. They responded by saying, How can we sing a song of Yahweh in a foreign land? You see, there was great mourning. They sat captive in a foreign land, and they couldn't sing a joyful song to the Lord. They're like a a songbird in a cage. They had no song left in them. But it was there by the same river that Daniel was mourning. But they also, in that psalm, expressed anticipation that Yahweh would remember. It goes on in verse 7. Remember, O Yahweh, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, tear it down, tear it down to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have recompensed us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your infants against the cliff. You see, they looked forward to God's recompense upon Babylon, God repaying them. They slaughtered their children, and they said, one day God is going to pay you back too. Babylon had fallen. Cyprus came, recompense had come. The people had been allowed to return, but yet only a small portion did. They weren't diligent in rebuilding the temple. Their enemies were succeeding against them. And it was sad and heartbreaking to Daniel the fact that those who couldn't sing a song to the Lord in a foreign land neither had the desire to sing it to him in his own land. This would have multiplied Daniel's grief. He was broken over this. And this intense period of mourning and fasting came as a result of that for three weeks at the rivers of Babylon. Yet it was here in this place of mourning that his despair would be turned into a certain 
anticipation. But we also see, notice it says it was the Tigris. Now, you may recognize that name. It was one of the, the name of one of the four rivers of the Garden of Eden. While this is not the same river, it nevertheless bears the same name. It would have served as a reminder to Daniel. I remember Eden. Mine is drawn to Eden, that place where man walked in perfect unity with his God, sweet fellowship with his maker, free from sin, free from hardship, living in peace with his king over him. This is what Daniel wanted for the people. This is what Daniel desired for the nation. He wanted them to walk with their God, that God would dwell in the midst of them, that he would be their God and they would be his people. Daniel longed to see that for the nation. So it's fitting that the name of this river draws attention back to that place where man once enjoyed sweet union with his God. And it's here that Daniel is going to receive a revelation of the future restoration of all things and of God's final victory. The setting of this vision lends itself to hope and assurance. God always comes through at the right time and at the right place. I feel like I can get an amen from that, right? Amen. (laughs) Daniel was in despair. The Lord was determined to reveal himself and address the concern of his heart at just the right time. And even though we're going to see later in upcoming studies that there was a lot going on behind the scenes, God was in control of every single detail. So we've seen that the setting of this vision lends itself to assuring Daniel, giving him certainty, but also the spectacle of what he saw. Verse 5. I lifted my eyes, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose loins were girded with a belt of purifying gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Notice first, he lifted his eyes. In a state of mourning and despair, the one who appears to him will lift his head. He comes from above. He is exalted, elevated above him, greater than him. This one comes from heaven with a message to Daniel. He's referred to as a certain man. Now, there's a number of interpretation of different views as to the identity of this man. One view suggests that this is the archangel Michael. But that view is unlikely because Michael's actually mentioned by name, third person, later in this prophecy, this revelation. So it kind of rules him out. Others have suggested that this is the angel Gabriel. The strength of that argument rests upon the parallel experience that Daniel had in chapter 8. There Daniel also fell on his face and fell asleep before the angel Gabriel. But the problem with that view is that Daniel would have recognized if it was Gabriel. He would have known it was Gabriel. He was familiar with Gabriel. In chapter 8, he had an encounter with Gabriel, and then he had another encounter with him in chapter 9. In verse 21, he said that this was the one whom he had seen in the vision previously. He knew Gabriel. He understood who he was. So this one is not recognized to Daniel. He doesn't recognize him as Gabriel. Rather, he says that he's a certain man. The preferred view is that this is a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. First, the strength of this vision and the impact that it had on Daniel is greater than the impact that Gabriel's vision or any other angel had on anybody. Not only that, but the vision is similar to the vision that Ezekiel had of the glory of God, and it is nearly identical to the Apostle John's vision of Christ 
in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Also, the sheer glory of this certain man is far surpassing that of any angel ever mentioned in Scripture. Everything about him expresses power, beauty, glory, majesty, and honor. This is none other than a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. He was a certain man. A certain man comes to Daniel as a result of his fasting and prayer. I think about that. Daniel is crying out to God. He's mourning and seeking God. And how does God answer him? Well, he answers him with the man, one in the likeness of a man, one like the Son of Man, chapter 7. What is it that Israel needs? What is it that Daniel is ultimately hoping for? It is a certain man. It's a man, a, a certain person. All their hope rested on this one. The future of Israel was wrapped up in one person. God didn't respond to comfort and assure Daniel with an army. He didn't say, hey, what you really need is political success. You really need social programs. You need to really be able to just outmaneuver your enemies. Rather, they needed a certain man. Imagine being in a desperate situation. A situation that's beyond you, it's greater than you can't overcome it. You're going to war against an invading army, and you need help. You need an army on your team. You need great reinforcements, and you call in for reinforcements, and you hear they come, and you go out to see what they sent, and it's one man. Just a single guy. What? How devastating that would be for anybody else. But this certain man was all that was needed. This certain man would be the assurance that Israel's future was secure. And so Daniel sought for the Lord after the Lord for three weeks of prayer, and his mourning is answered. Daniel's given certainty from a certain man. Now, as we consider the actual vision that he has here of Christ, we work through it, consider the various elements. It might be helpful to categorize it. It's not perfect, but into two groups. First, we see his apparel, and then we see his appearance. We see that he was dressed in linen, whose loins were girded with a belt of pure fine gold of uphaz. Now, fine linen, that was the priestly garments, particularly as they ministered in the temple. Uh, they fulfilled their priestly duties. They served the Lord, representing God, um, men before God and God before men. They stood there on the people's behalf. It also pointed to their purity, their holiness as they served before the Lord. They were fit ministers, able ministers. Uh, to the Lord. There's no blemish to be found in them. That pure, fine uh, linen pointed to their consecration to the Lord. The belt was also often worn by priests. This would have designated them as a representative as well. Leviticus 16.4 says that these garments, they're holy garments. As Christ is revealed to Daniel here, he is seen as the one who stands to minister on behalf of the people representing them and having their interests in mind. He also represents God before the people when he comes. Ultimately, there's a message to be delivered to Daniel. It says that his belt was of pure fine gold of Uphaz, signifying that he was a priest according to the highest order. He was indeed a royal priest. Gold is the metal of kings. You remember back in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar erected a statue of himself made entirely of gold. As Daniel was in mourning, concerned over the future of Israel, the Lord answered his prayer by revealing a great priest, a priest of Israel, one who would intercede on their behalf, had their, their interests in mind, but also a king, one who had the power to bring about his desired end 
for them. His appearance was also a sight to behold. We saw his apparel, but now his physical appearance. <clears throat> verse 6. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Beryl, the Tarshish stone. This was a transparent jewel with a golden hue. It was one of the stones that was found in the ephod, again, pointing to that priestly nature. When God commanded Moses concerning Aaron's clothes, he said, you're going to make the clothing for the high priest, uh, which included the ephod. God says, you make these garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Everything about Christ's appearance here is glorious, utterly glorious. Everything points and radiates glory. Everything says and screams beauty. Christ is gloriously seen here. While Nebuchadnezzar was undoubtedly flattered by the fact that he represented the head of gold in the statue in his dream, he took it further and tried to represent his entirety by a whole statue made of gold. But no man has any glory that can compare with the glory of Christ. And the appearance of this certain man points to a greatness that nobody else on earth possesses. The glory, it was streaming from his face. Notice it says that he had the appearance of lightning. His face had the appearance of lightning. In the Bible, God's presence is often associated and connected with lightning. When God came down on Mount Sinai, there was thundering and lightning flashes, the sound of a trumpet, and the mountain smoked. The book of Job, God's greatness and His majesty are seen in His command of the lightning. Psalm 18, God's absolute power is portrayed with the imagery of lightning. Psalm 77 and 97 both say that his lightnings flash and light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. Psalm 78, 48, lightnings used in reference to God's wrath and judgment against the Egyptian enemies of his people. And it says that he sent his lightnings against their herds. He sent upon them his burning fear, anger, fury, and indignation and distress. And here, Jesus' face is as the appearance of lightning, and no enemy of his people would be able to stand against him. But not only that, his eyes were like flaming torches. The eyes of the Lord, the Bible tells us, go to and fro throughout the earth. Uh, they are searching, they are examining the hearts of men. His eyes point to his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things. There is nothing hidden from his sight. David said in Psalm 139, he said, Oh, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Verse 7, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance. There's absolutely nothing hidden from God. There's nothing can escape his sight. And the author of Hebrews echoes that idea in chapter 4. He says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can't escape his gaze. It's kind of like when you go to the grocery store and you see someone, you rec recognize someone from church and you can't remember their name and hide another aisle, don't let them see us. Or maybe you're in a different fellowship group, you're from Commissioned and you <laughs> end up in Sojourner. Like, don't let them see me. They're going to see you and you're going to have to make that awkward conversation. 
You can't get away from God's penetrating gaze, and everyone has to answer to him. Next, we see that his arms and his feet were like the gleam of burnished bronze. Bronze was a metal heavily utilized in the construction of the temple. It also signified an unyielding strength. God told the people in Leviticus 26 and 28, Deuteronomy 28 as well, that if they rebelled, if they didn't listen to him, they didn't keep his commandments, he would curse them. And the curses that he would send upon them, he says, I'm going to make the sky above you like iron and the earth below you like bronze. You're going to literally going to be stuck between like a rock and a hard place. You're going to be stuck between two very tough places and it's going to be miserable for you. An unyielding strength. Deuteronomy 33, Moses was blessing the children of Israel before he passed and he blessed Asher saying, may his locks or the bolts be like iron and bronze. Those bolts, those locks which barred the city shut, which protected and preserved, may they be as strong as bronze. Samson, when his eyes were plucked out, he was bound with bronze chains. But bronze was also used uh, in the Bible. We see it's used in armor as well as being a medal of weapons. David praised God, saying that he trains my hands for battle so that I am able to bend a bow of bronze. The picture of arms and feet burnished, of burnished bronze highlights the sheer strength of Christ, of this certain man, and his power in battle. This burnished bronze sparkled, uh, it, this burnished bronze it sparkled and it gleamed. It once again pointed to the glory radiating from Christ, just pure glory. Earlier, chapter 5, Belshazzar experienced just the hand, just the finger of God writing on the wall. When Pharaoh's magicians were unable to fend off the plagues of the gnats, what do they say? This is the finger of God. These men, they only experienced the most minimal of God's might. But here, Christ's arms and legs are laid bare, showing forth the fullness of his might. If no man could stand alone or stand against his finger, they would nevertheless, they wouldn't be able to stand against his outstretched arm either. It says that the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Israel often faced a multitude of enemies. They were surrounded, seemingly on every side. Yet the one who secured their future spoke words like that of a multitude and ultimately would drown all the others out. I love what Jeremiah 10, 13 says. When he gives forth his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. It's the same word. There's a multitude of waters in the heavens. When he speaks, there is this multitude. I love what Jeremiah goes on saying as he speaks of Yahweh, he speaks of God. He says, he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings out the wind from his storehouses. Every man is senseless, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his graven image. For his molten images are a lie and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, a work of mockery in the time of their punishment. They will perish The portion of Jacob is not like these. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he. Have you seen that from this vision? That this certain man who stands before them is like no other. No one can compare to him. The glory of this certain man who the best sense of it is Christ, I believe. It's Christ standing before us high and lifted up. This one, this certain man is elevated above all. He's the most glorious person ever. An experience with him leaves a lasting mark. And he is the perfect answer to all of Daniel's concerns. 
And he's the perfect answer to all of yours and mine as well. When our heart is troubled within us, we need to see Christ. Just one glimpse of his person was enough to give Daniel all the certainty that he needed concerning the future of Israel. The nation may have been in disgrace and weakness, but the one who stood before Daniel was in strength, glory, and power. Is the future of Israel in jeopardy? Is their hope lost? Have they messed up too much? Have they gone too far? Of course not. Look at the one who stands for them, priest and king. So far, we have seen that both the setting and the spectacle, they lend themselves, they give themselves to giving Daniel assurance of the future restoration, preparing him for the coming revelation that he's going to receive. We also see that the selectivity also gives him a certainty of Israel's hope. Verse 7, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision that appeared. But the men who were with me did not see the vision that appeared. Nevertheless, a great terror fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Now this vision, it came specifically to Daniel. He says, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. Uh, the Hebrews fairly emphatic. It literally reads, and I saw, I, Daniel, I alone. He has a similar emphasis in verse 8 as well. He says there, so I alone remained and saw this great vision. The Hebrew there reads, and I, I was left, I alone, and I saw. It's just me, only me here. The vision came to Daniel, although he had men with him, they nevertheless, they didn't see what Daniel did. Jesus, this man, this certain man, did not uh, reveal himself to everybody in the same manner, but just to the one who was seeking him. We do not know who these men are. We're not told. Were they Daniel's attendants? Quite possibly. 80, approximately 80 years old. It would make sense. He had assistance as he fasted for three weeks along a, a river bank. Were they likewise fasting and seeking God? We don't know, but I suspect not. Because when Christ, when this certain man comes in response to the fast, they had no part in it. Rather, they feared and they fled. It says a great terror fell on them. And that refers to a trembling and a shaking. The word finds use often in the context of war. It's used to describe a crippling terror, a state of horror, like that which often follows in the wake of bad news, uh, a surprise, unpleasant surprise, a theophany or a Christophany such as this. The word is intensified in that it says that it was a great terror. Now, people often say it's fight or flight, right? Those are your two options, fight or flight. Well, not in this case. It was just flight all the way. The overwhelming power of this vision did not need to be seen in order to be felt. Now, you're probably familiar, or, you know, you're aware that we had an earthquake just a couple days ago, right? Um, I'm sure you felt it. it. Funny thing was, is as I came to the completion of this sermon, literally, as I finished, the, it began to shake. And I was like, this is a sign from heaven. Like, you thought it was false, but this is heaven coming down. This is going to be a powerful message, right? <laughs> but as is common, after you have an earthquake, you talk about it with some friends. We had some friends over, and we were talking about notable experiences that we had with earthquakes. And my most notable experience with an earthquake uh, came when I was much younger, and it involved my mother. God bless her. I love her. She's deathly afraid of earthquakes. <laughs> And it was, uh, I don't remember, I was fairly young, uh, but it was about 11 o'clock at night or so, and I'm laying in bed, half asleep, just on the verge, like, oh, like 10 more seconds, I probably would have been gone. 
And all of a sudden, it starts to shake. Like, oh, okay, this is cool. I like earthquakes. Like, this, oh, it's an earthquake. Cool. And during that time, I slept with my door open. And I remember just glancing over to the door. And all I see is my mom just out the house, gone, terrified, runs out into the middle of the street. And then all of a sudden, there was I, I, Daniel, I alone. <laughs> I remained in the house by myself. <laughs> Uh, well, just like my mother did to me, so these men. <laughs> uh, uh, honor your father and mother. <laughs> uh, so these men fled from Daniel as well. <laughs> okay, get serious, people. Come on. <laughs> Jeremiah 30, uh, he uses this word as well, he, this word terror, and he used it to refer to men's cries of terror and dread. The men who were there in, the, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah's passages, they're seen with their hands over their loins as though they're a woman in childbirth and their faces turn pale. That's what this dread does. That's what this terror does to a man. This is the proper response before such a man, before such a one as this. This is what the people did at Sinai when God came down. And so too, these men hid themselves and they left Daniel. God is a discriminating God. He chooses to whom and how he will reveal himself. He did not allow these men to see what Daniel saw. This is similar to Paul's experience. His encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. The men with him, they had an experience, but they didn't see the same thing Paul did, and they feared as well. Just like with Paul, this vision was intended for Daniel. It was Daniel who mourned over Israel. It was Daniel who sought God through prayer. It was Daniel who needed the response, and so God came to him and him alone. So how does this component of the vision give Daniel assurance of the certain future of Israel? Well, because it was the concern of his heart, and that is why Christ came and appeared to him. I've come to respond and answer and reply to your concern, and he gave him certainty for that. Later on in verse 12, an angel speaks to Daniel and says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you gave your heart to understand this and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. And again in verse 14, this angel says to Daniel, <coughs> Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. That's why he came in response to Daniel's words to give him an understanding that he sought after. Daniel wanted to know Israel's end. Daniel truly and deeply desired to understand how these circumstances fit into God's plan and all that he had revealed previously. Being heartbroken by Israel's <clears throat> lack of enthusiasm to return to the land and the opposition that they faced, he began to pray. And from the moment he began to pray, heaven mobilized. Heaven began to Come to meet with Daniel. And there the Lord meets him. God is indeed a God who hears prayers. Isn't that comforting? What a wonderful truth that is. He knows the deepest concerns and anxieties that trouble and perplex his people. God paid close attention to Daniel from the first day that he made his petition. <clears throat> and he revealed his glory to him to assure him of his might and to make him ready to receive the coming prophecy, the coming revelation. Now, this was not just some 
general revealing of himself to anyone who might be in the right place at the right time. This was a direct address to a specific question. This isn't the spray and pray technique to vision and, and to uh, revelation, hoping that something sticks, somebody somewhere gets ministered to by something, somehow. Rather, this uh, is direct and specific. I grew up in a certain church tradition, a little more charismatic, and uh, it would be common to hear the speaker or the preacher address the crowd and say, I've, I've got a word for you today. I, someone here, i got a word for someone here today. The Lord is telling me that, that you're, you, you have back pains. There's someone here, you're tired. You are hungry, right? God's speaking to me, I know it. And without fail, every time, I would have multiple people coming up to me and say, that was so powerful. That word is for me. I got back pains. I'm like, really? So do I. So who is it for? Is it for you? Is it for me? Is it for that guy? How does this work? This un- misunderstanding, misguided understanding of how the Lord speaks in that church led to no certainty. It gave no one any assurance how would you know that the Lord is directing, directly addressing your situation in that, situ- in that circumstance? I always wondered, too, like, if God has given you a word, why not? Why does he stop and say to a crowded room of people, there's one person here, I just know it? Why doesn't he direct you to that one person and speak specifically to them? It always showed the fault and the error of that thinking. Now, this vision wasn't like that. This word is not the same. This is a direct message to a particular man concerning a specific issue. And his appearance assured Daniel that the concerns of his heart would be resolved. They were addressed by heaven. In my house, there's often lots of crying. Not to mention we have two babies as well. That's the adults crying. You didn't pick up on that. One of them is crying because they're hungry. I'm not going to say who. One of us is always hungry. (laughs) One's crying because they fell and hurt themselves. One's crying because they broke their toy. One's crying they got a messy diaper. Now, if I approach their cries with some one-size-fits-all method, and I wasn't specifically addressing their concerns, oh, they would have no assurance brought to them when my presence came to their cry. No, they would look and they would wonder, Can you, did you hear me? Can you resolve my issue? Daniel has cried out, and this certain man comes to him to address the great issue of his heart. He comes to him alone, He first gets rid of the others. It's not in response to their prayers, and Christ is here to meet Daniel's need. What a great God we have. He knows how to meet you just where you are. He knows how to minister to you, and he loves all of his children. He hears all of our prayers. Wonderful. David said in the Psalms, on the day that I called, you answered me. And he goes on, Yahweh, he says, Yahweh will accomplish that which concerns me. So having seen so far, we've seen the setting of the vision as well as the spectacle and the selectivity of the vision have all served to give Daniel a certain assurance of Israel's future. And that one day, all that was prophesied, all that was said would come to pass. Well, now, lastly, we see that the strength of this vision will also confirm that for him as well. Verses 8 and 9. So I alone remained and saw this great vision that appeared, yet no might remained in me. For my outward splendor turned into a deathly pallor, and I retained no might. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. 
What do you do in a situation like that? What's your response? You come face to face with such a one as this. What would you do? The men who were with Daniel, they were overtaken by great fear. They fled. They didn't even have to see him in order to feel him. But Daniel was not immune to the, this, the power of this vision as well. He says he has the proper response to it. He goes on. He says that no might remained in me and that he retained no might. His strength was completely depleted. He was like an empty cup with no power left in him. The word retained, it has a sense of keeping one in prison, hindering, stopping, holding one back. Essentially, as the power is leaving, his strength is departing from him. Try as he may, Daniel cannot hold on to any power, any strength at all in the face of this certain man. The closest experience that I have ever had to something like that was during the birth of my two daughters. Now, childbirth is a beautiful thing to experience for the husbands, a little different for the wife. You're probably familiar with the saying, when you say something is not for the faint of heart, well, childbirth is definitely not for the faint of heart, which I am. I almost fainted twice, both times, almost fainted. And I remember with our first daughter, they asked me, sir, would you like a chair? <laughs> me a chair? Come on. During the second daughter, the first thing I asked is, there's going to be a chair, right? <laughs> Does it have cushions? <laughs> I want to be comfortable. <laughs> but I remember literally locking my arms into the bed, the rails on the bed, and holding on for dear life. But the experience was too much for me. And I began to feel myself fade. Started seeing stars. My vision got dark, and my head felt like 100 pounds. And I just remember thinking to myself, Daniel, just hold on a little longer, buddy. Don't give up now. You're almost there. Thankfully, I was able to hold on. Daniel wasn't, though. He succumbed. It was too much. He said that his outward splendor turned into a deathly pallor. The term splendor, it's used in the Bible to refer to God's majesty, to the glory of kings, and even to the beauty of war horses. Daniel said that his beauty turned into deathly pallor. That is ruin. That's destruction. Or as the King James Version puts it, it says his comeliness turned into corruption. Sounds beautiful, but it really wasn't for Daniel. He looks sick. He looks deathly. He looks as though he had just seen a ghost, we might say. There's no Instagram filter that could uh, fix that for him. The best that Daniel had to offer in all of his beauty was destroyed before the splendor of the one who stood before him. It didn't pale, into compar- it didn't pale in comparison to him. And the beauty of his Hebrew complexion became pale. Well, according to one health website, the most common cause of fainting is vasovagal syncope. I really hope I said that right. But this occurs when your body reacts strongly to a trigger, such as fear or emotional distress, to name a couple. And what happens is your heart rate plummets drastically and you faint, you pass out. The lack of blood supply, you become very pale, your muscles become weak. That sounds a lot like what Daniel's going through. No doubt, regardless, Daniel was rocked from the inside out. He was completely overwhelmed by the strength of this vision. No, no strength left in him at all. And it said that he heard the sound of his words, and as soon as he heard the sound of his words, he said, I fell into a deep sleep. Now, people have had similar responses to my preaching, but it's okay for... <laughs> Daniel, but it's not okay for you. I give you permission to nudge the person next to you. 
he fell into a deep sleep. The sound of this multitude came, and Daniel was overcome, and he says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. This is the proper response to such a vision. The falling on the ground before him. Others in the Bible experienced similar reactions. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, when he saw a vision of Christ, he fell at his feet like a dead man. The Apostle Paul also was knocked to the ground when, he, uh, when Christ was revealed to him, the vision uh, on Damascus Road. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he brought a whole cohort of Roman guards, Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. And when Jesus asked them, who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And when he said that, they fell down before him. That's the proper position before God is on your face on the ground. In the face of his strength, nobody could stand. And that certainty from the strength of this vision would have assured Daniel that nobody can thwart God's plans for his people. No enemy, no army, no circumstance, no failure. God is in control. The God who stood before him was all-powerful and completely in control of the destiny of his people. As we consider the implications for us today, we see a parallel experience that the Apostle John had in the book of Revelation. Go ahead and turn there now. Revelation chapter 1. I want to close there. (coughs) Revelation 1. The Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos uh, for his testimony to the uh, Word of God, his faith in Christ. He's imprisoned. He's locked up there. He says that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, the sound of a trumpet. And he says in verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were like white, uh, were like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword, which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It's nearly identical experience and vision to what Daniel had and what Daniel saw. And as Jesus came to Daniel in the Old Testament as the great priest and king of his people, Israel, so too does he come to John the Apostle in the New Testament, representing and ruling over his church. As Israel's future is secure because of the one who is in control, so too is the church's future likewise secure. So too is your future likewise secure. It's in the hands of the one who loves you, who has all power. There's no one who is able to snatch you from his hands. I love what Paul said. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, God has promised us in his word that our sins are forgiven and that when this life finishes, we have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven. But sadly, at times, 
we go through things and we can doubt the reality of that. We can doubt the sure end of God's people, of your own self. But what a wonderful thing it is that we can look to God. We can see Him, even though we're discouraged and we might be mourning over our current situations, we can know that the church will truly be victorious in the end. God's people will succeed. What we need is we need a vision of Christ. I don't mean a supernatural, ecstatic vision, but rather we need a vision of Him as He is seen in the pages of the Bible. We need to behold Christ. We need to see Him every day. We need to renew our vision of Christ daily and see Him as He is portrayed and presented before us in His full glory and His full strength and His full might. And as John and Daniel both described with great detail what they saw, the more we meditate on His perfections, the more glorious He becomes and the more beautiful we clearly Uh, the more beautifully we we see him uh, clearly. We see his beauty clearly before us. When I see him, I see that he's gentle. I see that he's lowly, that he's meek, that he's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I see that he was the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. But yet he was also, he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. When you behold Christ, all your concerns, the concerns of your heart is addressed. Your hope, your security, your future, it's wrapped up in a person. Let me just exhort you to look to him daily. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, you are so good. You are so kind in saving us, calling us to yourself And as Daniel was concerned over the future of Israel, he found assurance that the one who prophesied their end would ultimately bring it to pass. We thank you for that certainty, that blessed assurance. We love you, Lord. Stir our hearts this week. Motivate us. Give us a great desire to see you in your word to behold you as you have presented yourself to us, to see you in all your glory, and to find strength for our weary hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday. You are dismissed.